Hello, and welcome to another episode of Is This Just Fantasy? I'm your host, Georgie Bailey. And I'm the man embodying the spirit of Christmas, Duncan Nickel. Ho, 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 Duncan. Ho, 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 indeed. That's an oft-repeated line throughout the book. I think, you know, Terry Pratchett is known to be a quotable author, but I think that might be the main one we take away from this book. So, we're on the run-up to Christmas, mate. So we are. So we are, Duncan. It, there's snow on the ground outside. I, I haven't seen snow in quite a long time. I was genuinely... It's the most Christmassy i felt in some time. Uh, not today. I feel awful today. But uh, but this, this particular holiday season... Uh, snowed outside it's nice and chilly I'm, i've been staying by the fire it's great i feel like i'm also really getting into the spirit of the season but for the first time in my life i'm experiencing like the adult side of christmas uh-oh i know this is the first year i've um i have my own house and i've agreed to host my family and and it's stress mm. so much stress you discovered that the vi- have you discovered the vegetarian turkey is too big for the oven? Uh, no, not quite that issue. I've got some more fundamental ones where, despite being living in this house now for over a year, um, I literally haven't even put up curtains in the dining room, and I've literally don't own enough chairs for the number of people, and I don't see how this why this didn't occur to me until like a week, a week before Christmas. So, Duncan, what book are we talking about today? In the spirit of Christmas, we are reading The Hogfather, the Christmas mm. parody, I'm going to say, written by mm-hmm. the late great Sir Terry Pratchett, set in his Discworld universe. Yeah, that's this is our first Discworld novel. We have covered Dear Terry before with Good Omens, his collaboration with Neil Gaiman, and yet we are now coming back to Dear Old Terry with um, our first Discworld novel. I think I really want to lay the land then and be like, so, Mr. Bailey, what's your kind mm. of prior history with Sir Terry? Duncan? Hello? You just cut out. Oh. Uh, I mean, maybe you just ended your sentence. It, sa- it, didn't, it sounded like you were cut off in the middle of a sentence. <laughs> so, what, you said, what is your prior history of Sir Terry? And then you just stopped. Oh, okay, so we lost the last word there. What's your prior history with Sir Terry Pratchett and his Discworld series? Um, I will answer the first part of that question, because my first proper experience with Sir Terry, um, I think was his novel Nation. It wasn't actually Discworld. Nation was <laughs> had an adaptation, which was... um. It came to the National Theatre. It became a play. And um, it's this story about um, a Victorian-era girl who washes up on a, uh, on a Polynesian island. And, it's, um, and it has a really fantastic exploration of, like, what we consider to be advanced. You know, it's about science and it's about uh, how we relate to religion and... and and big ideas around faith. And that was my first interaction with Terry. Um, I, I obviously was very interested in the Discworld novels, and I eventually started to read them. Unfortunately, I did read A Colour of Magic first, which you're not supposed to do. I was very silly trying to start with the first one, and that kind of put me off for a time. However, 
my main connection to him was all the BBC adaptations of his stories. Like the full cast uh, audio, uh, radio play versions of his stories. Oh, I've not heard those ones. I've heard the audio books. Oh, haven't you? Yeah, I've listened to... No, not audio books. They're radio plays. Ooh. So there's no narration. It's just the characters. Um, which I think is actually a sort of fundamental issue. I think they are they are good, but they are um, fundamentally flawed. You can't appreciate Terry just by listening to the characters. You have to hear the narration. The narration is, in of itself, almost a character, and you're missing out on something really crucial. I, I couldn't agree more. I think we said long, long, long time ago when we read Good Omens how the narrator is basically another character in those books who gets almost all the good lines. Mm. And I won't know if that's quite the same here, but it is pretty much the same. Uh, but I don't think... Now, Duncan, if I stretch my mind back, I can go back to our our sort of fantasy origin story episode, and I think you placed Terry along the same lines as, like, George R. R. Martin when it came to getting you into fantasy. Isn't that right? Well, somewhat. So Terry came first and probably had a slightly bigger role. Mm. Discworld was one of those ones that uh, my mother had very much all the old books, paperback books with their amazing cover work um, on the shelf. Mm -hmm. And from a very young age, I was like, I I want to read them. Uh, There's a particular one for the book Soul Music, which has the Grim Reaper death driving a motorbike on the front cover. And my young, like, five-year-old mind was like, what what is this story? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I want to read this. And then I I think it was really weirdly, I think it was something like Making Money. I saw the cover off and I was like, right, I want to get into this series. And then I was like, okay, well, you should probably start like near the beginning. And for some reason, I actually read Eric first. Well, I think Obviously, because everyone knows you're a huge Faust head. You bloody love Faust. I know. And... It was also one of the shorter ones, and I knew I knew very much the material it was kind of pulling on. So that was kind of good. But then I went back and I read Colour of Magic, and I read them kind of through in publication order. I think I jumped a few a few couple of times. I read a Watch one back to back because I really liked them, um, and somehow I missed Night Watch. I just got to the end and went, "Wait, I've I've not read a book." Um, but that, yeah, I don't think people really do. Um, Half on that you shouldn't start with Colour of Magic. And I think the main issue with it is that it's not necessarily representative of the rest of the series. I still don't think it's a bad book. I found out whilst making preparing for this episode that Terry didn't write, like, a plot for any of his stories until Mort. That was the first one he was like, this one should probably have a story. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Colour of Magic, like, fantastic, did not happen. Colour of Magic is literally just a series of events which happen. It's a balance I think he kind of plays with, and he goes back and forth between different Discworld books. Um, oh, God, we've got to do a little ground laying here. For, the, for those coming in a bit more blind to the practice Discworld, it is a series of somewhat 41 novels, but it's comprised of mm-hmm. multiple kind of sub-series based around individual characters. Uh, most notably, uh, mm-hmm. Rincewind the Wizard, who appears in the very first few. You have the Witches and their Coven. Uh, starring Granny Weatherax, which ultimately morphs into the Tiffany Aching series. 
You have my personal favourite, the City Watch, led by Sam Vimes. Mm-hmm. And you have the Death series. I think it's what we call it. Mm. Which don't always star the principal character, but stars members of his extended family. Mm-hmm. And then you've got a load of others that don't really fit into them. And there's uh, later on, he kind of does this trilogy about Industrial Revolution. It's still very interesting. And the thing about Discworld is that it's fundamentally a weird series. It's all, it's all rather strange. Discworld is deliberately ostentatious and out there you know like the big pitch people give to it is that you know it takes place on a flat world resting on the back of four elephants who stand at the back of a great turtle atuan floating through space and the thing which people tend to miss out is that Discworld is a world where everything people believe is true i'm presuming that you're believing in the uh, Rukunome, Tooth Fairy, and Hogfather. If you want to believe in such things as mm-hmm. truth, justice, and a fair world, you might be out of luck. So you've already mentioned Hogfather, and that's because that theme of belief and what it takes to believe in something and the reason to believe in things is pretty fundamental to this story. This is the book about fantasies. It's the book about belief. And how it relates to the human experience, um, while at the same time being a book about parodying Christmas and Christmas traditions. That tends to be that tends to be sort of Terry's method for deciding whether to write a story or not. It's sort of what can I lampoon with uh, with this one? What can I sort of poke fun at as a framework to tell the rest of my story? Yeah, other great examples. Um, the book Masquerade, I love. That takes the same approach to the Phantom of the Opera. Um, some of the witches one actually do amazingly where they parody Shakespeare. Oh, wonderful. But you're right, he never, it's never the whole story, and it's not the whole story here. It's always sort of the starting point or the structure to... Well, to, there's a point to begin, and then off that, I think we often get three things. We normally get great character work, some well-written jokes and then normally a bigger kind of philosophical point or message that Sir Terry wants to put across and that except with Color of Magic that is just that a series, just that's a series, a series of jokes and some of them are quite funny jokes uh, but I also want yep. to say that that balance of those three elements definitely changes between book to book and I'm quite excited already to kind of go in how mm. you feel that the Hogfather kind of measures up on those scales so I guess we're getting into it then the Hogfather is what, the fourth death book? Is that yes, right? it is indeed. So to set the scene, because we do, it is kind of deep in the series, although you definitely could just go straight in with the Hogfather. It gives you more than enough information. No, you can't go into Hogfather. Yes, you definitely, you definitely can. definitely can't. I, you... No, you can't. There is so much stuff in this book which makes absolutely no sense. And the only reason I was able to like appreciate this book was the fact that I have read other books in a series, and specifically books about death. If you had read only watch novels, then you'd be, oh, good, Corporal Nobby Nobs is here. I'm glad to see him. If you hadn't really spent a lot of time with the character of death, you would be incredibly confused. You would not understand the character, and you wouldn't know where to go from here. This is not, you should not start with the Hogfather. I'm going to uh, draw the important difference between the words should and could. Uh, you could start that with the Hogfather. 
I did once after I got to the Hogfather before the other death books. Death still appears as a character in other books, though. He does indeed. If you read Small Gods, he shows up. And- I think the one character who doesn't get enough explanation would be Death's second-hand man, Albert. Everyone else gets enough in this book, I think, to place them in the story. He's the only one who I'm like, you You just need to know. You just need to have read the previous books. Sorry, George, I know I'm making off point. Obviously, if you want to get into the Death series and you've heard about this great character, read Mort and go mm-hmm. in publication order. But let's just say you're trapped, you're stuck on a plane, that, you know, all you have is that your brother has one book in his rucksack that he's not reading and he offers it to you and it's Hogfather, you could read it. And still find the jokes funny. Yeah. like, And as you say, could versus should. This is not the one you should begin with. I will concede. Geordie, how did you feel about Hogfather? Um... Then describe it. Tell me how it made you feel. I mean, it wasn't the best one. I was really had high hopes for this. I really had high hopes. And um, I was actually a little disappointed. Not in it as a book. Still a good book. I felt like I wasn't, I don't know, I didn't feel like I enjoyed as much as I should enjoy a Discworld novel. With a heavy heart, I somewhat agree with you. This didn't quite give me the same excitement I was hoping for, Uh, but I think there's a lot for us to say when we explore why. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, a really fundamental trait of uh, Discworld novels, particularly I find ones that aren't right at the beginning, you know, once you get past that Rincewind era, is that it floats around between characters' perspectives. And it tends to end up being these these stories which sit alongside one another, entwining and then leading towards the same conclusion. The best example of that I can give is The Fifth Elephant. The Fifth Elephant, you know, like, it's all about these branching stories which converge at the end. And... Some of the scenes, despite being very enjoyable, I kind of felt like didn't add towards that conclusion. So there were lots of scenes, for example, with the wizards. And I loved all the wizard scenes. Well, not all of them. Some of them were a waste of time. But I loved most of the wizard scenes. Um, but I, but at the end of the book, I went, okay, so most of those scenes did not have to happen. Um, they didn't contribute to the story. And they were just there because Terry wanted to make fun of academics. This links into what I said earlier about the scales, about jokes, a philosophical message, and sort of plotting. Mm-hmm. The this is thing. Every time we cut back to the wizard scenes, I was like, "We're getting more jokes. We're not. This isn't progressing it." And I felt that in so many areas, and it really kind of confused me, because when anyone talks about Hogfather. They seem to talk about a particular passage near the end of the book, a conversation between our sort of main character, Susan and Death, and Mm -hmm. it's the big philosophical moment. And it is a beautiful conversation, and it has a really nice message. Mm -hmm. But this is, in my paperback, this is a 440-page novel. Yeah. And there's like 150 pages where I don't think our characters are really progressing. I think we're sort of just going from kind of jokey scene to jokey scene. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of the death scenes are him just sort of 
getting a Christmas tradition wrong or kind of putting it under the microscope. And they're good and they're interesting. But the message or that we're kind of taking away is often the same, just repackaged on a different tradition. That is well stated, Duncan. You're right. That and and the scenes where where are about oh death doesn't understand holiday traditions. Um, that's fine. You know they 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 work and they're funny scenes. But as you say, they sort of are essentially the same scene over and over. Um, they are also some of the best scenes in the book. But uh, there's a there's a lack of variety to it. Would you say that the pacing of this book? kind of goes you got the opening and we get introduced to the assassins and a lot happens to draw in our characters you know death's first introduction to bring you know hints to susan the assassins going into the two fairies castle and so mm-hmm. the plot's a bit out there people um someone's <laughs> trying to kill the hog father and their plan to do it is by attacking the two fairy it's so it's, it's, it, it gets explained well enough. Yeah, that was that's what, uh, what I like about this book. What I find really interesting and ambitious about it is how much information is held back from us. You know, like you say right from the start, they're gonna kill the Hog Father, um, but they're gonna do it by invading the Two Fairies Castle. If they don't say they're going to invade the Two Fairies Castle. Um, we don't know where they are. They're in this weird extra-dimensional space for a huge part of the novel. And Terry makes a very deliberate choice in not telling us anything about it. Uh, he leaves us in this this sense of unease and suspense. In fact, there's a ton of stuff throughout this novel which we are denied access to. I already know why because I I know the story. Of, I know what the story's about before I go in, which is a lot of my friends have been Terry Pratchett fans over the years. So. But if I picked up this book, I have no idea why Death is playing the role of Father Christmas or the Hog Father. I don't know. It, and it's not explained throughout most of the book. And I think that's actually a really smart choice. I think it also is a smart choice, but also I felt diminished. This, this is a reread for me, people. And I felt it sort of diminished it a lot of it. Because it meant mm. that I could see with a lot of clarity as I was going through parts and scenes that weren't going to contribute too much later on um, and it just said to that okay. feeling of so the point i was making about the pacing you got that opening up and like they're off on this adventure and then it breaks down to switching between three kind of characters we go death we go susan we go to the wizards and other than susan mm. i felt like we were going to the plot's going to halt while we do a joke. And then we, we rotate around. Okay, back to Susan. Okay, she's she's on the mystery. She's trying to unravel everything. Okay, back to the wizards for a joke. Okay, down to death to yeah. do a joke. Okay, now Susan's going to progress the plot. And I think... The thing about the wizards in particular, and I really enjoy spending time with the wizards. I, I live in Cambridge. You know, I'm surrounded by boffins and, and the ceremony of academia. Um... So it's designed to resonate with me, you know, like to make fun of professors and um, and all that. And 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 the interesting thing about it is that whilst those were some of my favorite scenes, um, the thing which they really contribute at the end doesn't really have to do with any of the wizards, actually. You know, they, they're just sort of uh, somewhat related to the plot because all that needs to happen is death needs to speak to a computer. I'm thinking it through, and I think you're very much right. 
Um, okay, well, I'm just going to laugh on that, though. But that's why it's kind of hard, because I like that computer. I think it's a great joke. The wizards joke. create this... Con- Terry likes to make computer jokes. I felt like he was actually kind of cribbing some, some scenes from Good Omens. It's really nicely done. I like the fact that they're like... Um, at one point, it just asked us for a mouse, so uh, we've put one on a cage on the side. <laughs> that's right. That's such a classic Terry joke. Like, I feel like... If you could tell that joke out loud well, I think that would sort of give you the really clear idea of um what sort of joke he's making, like what his style of humour is. Do you know, and that also just makes me, I've got to bring up this scene, the restaurant scene, uh, they do a big joke about, he does several jokes about kind of fancy food when... Uh, oh, I actually, I genuinely didn't process any of that scene. <laughs> um, my eyes glazed over and it, this hasn't happened in years I got to the end of like a couple of pages and realised I hadn't processed any information I'm going to explain why that happens to Geordie and that's because this scene okay. is nothing it is literally mm-hmm. Death on his journeys makes a joke about he's given a big roast to some poor people and his part mm-hmm. and his sort of man servant to him goes but sir where did you get the food I don't know that's not how Albert talks he's far more of a drunkard uh, but mister where'd you get the food <laughs> exactly and he's like oh um, people who won't notice it's gone and then we cut to like a fancy restaurant and all of their food supplies being replaced by old muddy boots and there's an extensive scene of them like trying to rework the boots and like rebrand it as like fine cuisine um oh i well, I'm glad that you've now explained the joke to me because I genuinely didn't get it. Uh, so, so genuinely, thank you for that. There's um, even a direct line where, like, the shoe chef turns to the head chef and it's like, but we can't feed them this. This isn't proper food. And the head chef goes, don't be silly. People don't come to fancy restaurants for proper food. They're here for the experience. And um, it's not necessarily a bad point or jokes in this scene aren't funny. But it's nothing to the plot. And it's not so funny. So we've mentioned the word, the big P word quite a few times. So what is this story actually about? This story. See, I want to say when you say about, I'll be like, well, it's about the message of belief and the importance of having belief to be human and how we learn to believe in things as a child. And then we grow up and we believe in different things. But Mm -hmm. this story is, I think, a bit of a kind of detective story. It's actually, I think it's closer to his watch stories. This story, for most of the book, is Susan trying to unravel the mystery of how these assassins are planning to kill the Hogfather. At the start of the book, uh, these individuals, these auditors, go to the Assassin's Guild and say, we need you to kill the Fat Man, or dehume the Fat Man. And the Assassins pull in their best guy and go... Can you do it? And he goes, I have a plan. And it's left a mystery. And so I say this mm-hmm. book is about following Susan, who's the granddaughter of death, on her kind of funny, wacky adventure as she tries to work out how the assassins are planning to kill the Hogfather and how to stop them. And the thing about Susan is that, once again, if you haven't read the story Mort, then you'll be incredibly confused. Or if, like me, you listen to the BBC radio adaptation of Mort, Many, many years ago, but often fell asleep during the last episode because you listened to it many times and it became very comforting to you. Uh, And so you can't really remember how it ended. 
uh, you're going to be very confused by Susan. I really enjoy Susan as a character, but her backstory is very much tied to the prior death books, particularly Mort, where her parents meet, and Soul Music, where she has her first appearance. The idea behind Susan... I didn't even know she was from a different book. Man. She's in three books, and actually, I had to go and look up if she even cameos in any others after her next appearance, Thief of Time. And she doesn't, and I think it's a huge shame because I think she's one of my favourite kind of protagonists. Well, since you are so much more familiar with her than me, Duncan, can you tell us a little bit about Susan? I can. So let's go back, people, to where it all began in Mort, where Death uh, has an adopted daughter. And then Death, trying to find her a, uh, a friend, uh, takes on a human apprentice with basically the express idea that they might fall in love um so and that's more and more has his adventures and at the end of it him and death's daughter whose name i have forgotten i do apologize uh go to the mortal world become duke and duchesses and live a happy life and they have a daughter and when that daughter is very young her parents sadly pass away in a uh, carriage accident and she is left to fend for herself with nothing but a huge fortune to support her and (laughs) one of the points that's made is that susan growing up her parents wanted to hide from her who her grandfather was because her grandfather is death the green reaper himself and there's a big and even though like they're not connected by blood just having death as your grandfather it makes you quite strange. It's, it's the point that's made, I believe in soul music, is that Death's daughter was adopted into the family of Death. Mort married into the family of Death. But Susan is the first human ever to be born into the family of Death. And that gives her special mm. powers, um, such as the ability to walk through walls, the ability to sort of know mm-hmm. what's happening, even when it's not in front of her. The ability to mm-hmm. go unnoticed, and the voice, which Dordie, can you explain Death's voice in this? It's just great. Sure thing. It is great. Uh, Terry has always been a great author when it comes to typography. He knows that um, you know that books are a physical medium, and for that reason, I wouldn't recommend an audiobook for this one. I actually made a very conscious choice not to listen to the audiobook. I picked up a physical copy and I sat down and I read it. And part of the reason for that was I knew that no one's going to be able to do the death voice. When death speaks, he speaks in a different font. His font is uh, bold and um, I think like, for, I think it's base. I think it's like Times New Roman or something, but it's like a much more stark, it's a much more stark font and it's written in all caps and without punctuation. You know that Death is speaking because the entire page looks different. But he doesn't speak like a normal person. I believe in an earlier book, his voice is described as um, it sounds like falling tombstones. Yes, and I don't know if I get confused whether or not Death's voice also is one of those that appears in your head, which doesn't have to go via the ears, or if that's just the auditors. The auditors are great because, like Death, they don't have punctuation. Oh, they do have punctuation. But they don't have quotation marks, which means that it will say, and the audience, uh, and the audience said, we must do something about this. 
Like, it doesn't say, comma, we must do something about this. The idea is just that, you know, their speech is so fundamental to, like, existence itself that there's no differentiating the description of reality to what they say. And that's exactly why you have to read the physical version of, the, of these books. Uh, but the voice, when someone speaks to you like the Grim Reaper, you listen to what they say. And there are times when Susan will speak in all caps. And and not to, to indicate that she's shouting, but to show you're going to listen to what she has to say. Also, you missed out a pretty important power she has, which is to stop time. Oh, yes, that one. Yeah, it's quite, that's quite yeah. important. To go a little bit more into some of the other examples of the way he uses typography, because I think it is quite interesting. For example, there's a bit where um, you see, like, you know, it's about Father Christmas, essentially. And there's a bit where you see a child's note. A letter to the Hogfather. And you know, it's written in your, a kid's messy scroll. Do you know what? It never really hits me how actually you don't see... I'm going to say a lot of that. I haven't seen a lot of that t- changing typography um, in most books I've read. And I think it's actually such a nifty trick. Particularly for something just to clarify, mm. you know, this is a letter. Or to infer how something's been said. Like, I don't know, I just feel like, would you, would you, I would I enjoy it if, like, because often, like, block caps is quite useless for really shouting, and I think everyone on the internet can attest to that. But going to something like, mm-hmm. maybe something that is a little bit more squiggly to show maybe nervousness, like, or the emotional state. Well, on my bookshelf right now, I'm looking at the book The Ask and the Answer by Patrick Ness, which is part of his Chaos Walking series. Duncan, did you ever read Chaos Walking? The Knife and Never Letting Go? I uh, I have not. Those are good books. Um, that is also a book which does a lot with the written word. Um, there's a very there's a very stylized approach to chapters and the way things are written. Um, for one thing, the, the, the perspective character uh, is semi-illiterate, which means that tons of words in the story are misspelled. Uh, but the most fundamental example of this is the noise. And the noise in the series, uh, Chaos Walking, is that on that world, all the characters, um, they project their thoughts out into the world. They can't keep their thoughts inside their head. So the, 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 the dialogue and the prose is separated from this other third thing, which is just characters, ideas and thoughts just showing up on screen, on the page. And when it does show up, the font is different. It's squiggly. Sometimes it'll be like at an angle, canted. Uh, or sometimes you'll just see words piled on top of words, on top of words, on top of words. Uh, and he just goes crazy with it in like the second book. When like people start to shout using their noise, it'll be big, bold text. There's In the third book, there's a bit where a bomb goes off and a huge section of the page is taken up by the word BOOM. Um, so much so, you can actually see a black line on the spine of a book when where the M touches the side of a page. <laughs> okay, that's quite fun. Oh, and one more thing. Another example of that is that in book two, you get a new perspective character, and the fonts between characters are different. 
If you're reading a Todd chapter, it's a slightly messy script. And if you're reading a Viola chapter, it's very neat. It's very Times New Roman. Also, she doesn't misspell things. It's certainly something that I would love to see more of. And I'm not going to lie, I'd have to read that series if that's what it gives me. They're really good books. Didn't they recently have a film adaption? Yes. With, um... <laughs> I wouldn't bother checking it out. <laughs> Say no more. Uh, talking of adaptions, did you ever see the Sky live-action adaption of The Hogfather? Uh, no, I've never seen it, actually. I've only ever seen one frame of it, which is... um. I think, for a story that I don't think is easy to adapt, they make a genuinely good attempt. Um, I feel that for all of the, the Sky ones. They did three. I think they did Colour of Magic, this one Hogfather, and they did Going Postal. It's super weird how they adapted this book into a film three years before it came out. That's super strange, you know? Like, ambitious, almost. Sorry? So, it took me a really embarrassing amount of time. In fact, I know I made a note of it on page 257 of a 357-page novel to realise what this book was actually parodying. Pa- was actually parodying? Wait, 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 wait. It took you to a page 257 to realise this is a Christmas parody. No, Duncan, not a parody of Christmas. It's a parody of The Nightmare Before Christmas. Wait, what? Oh my god, I knew you wouldn't get it. I knew you wouldn't get it. No, it's not. Okay, Duncan. So a huge question of this book is, is Death having an identity crisis? Because he's playing this different role, right? Like Susan actually thinks that her grandfather has gone senile, that he's lost his mind. And Death isn't acting as he should. He's forgetting that he is sort of the Grim Reaper. He's getting possessed by this new role, these new ideas. He also happens to be a skeleton man who takes Father Christmas's sleigh and takes over his role. Kind of like Jack Skeleton. Skellington? Skellington. Um, I've never actually seen him in Night Before Christmas. Okay. Um, no, that's a separate I do like issue. the songs, though. It is a fantastic, it's a very good um, stop motion one. It was on my yearly list for ages, but then Elf came out. That's the list of films I, I watch every Christmas. Elf is, 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 is the Christmas movie in my household. That's the one we go for. It's so good. I didn't like it as a kid. Really? Yeah, and literally, as a child, I, I found it like too loud and too much. And then something changed when I was like 17. I went, oh, oh no, this is fun now. I can handle it. (laughs) The other day, my dad and I were literally scrolling through, scrolling through channels and just so happened to to catch the snowball scene um, in, um, in Elf. And we genuinely were like not paying attention to the TV. We're both focused on other things, but we just... Didn't change the channel after that, and then eventually just found ourselves watching Elf for the 30th time. Oh, that's so nice. I I have to fight out a corner for for Elf sometimes. Uh, my partner, she loves all of the, um, I don't know what to call them. Well, I mean, I do know what to call them. There's Christmas rom-coms, and uh, we have to watch with... Are we talking about A Night Before Christmas? We're talking about them all. We're talking about Let It Snow. We're talking about Single All The Way. We're talking about The Christmas Swap. We're talking about uh, one we watched this year. Was, um, was it Asa Butterworth? What's the one that's about like a Christmas monarchy? I think that's a Christmas Swap. 
they do a it's two it's a woman who looks like the the princess and they swap round christmas that's not what i'm referring to i'm talking about a different christmas monarchy one. Oh, it's about a journalist who um who goes to a fictional european country where they ha- just so happen to speak english and have a monarchy and um, wow fictional eh Sorry, that's a separate matter I have. I, it always drives me mad when they sometimes invent countries and you're just like... The staggering applications. What happened to Poland? Where did it go? Well, yeah, that's always the application. And, like, it, Marvel are terrible for this. They always do Eastern Europe. And they all... And despite the fact it's, like, I don't know, 2000... Look, there's room, man. If you just broke up another Soviet bloc country, you'd not notice. Recently, I've been playing a game called Worldle, which is, like, the ge- geography version of Wordle. Um, it's hard. There are a lot of Soviet bloc countries, and they have weird borders. I feel like we're getting dangerously offensive here. Although, to be fair, I did, um, at my work Christmas do, we did capitals of countries. And mm-hmm. there were some, I was just there like, I didn't know that country existed. Duncan, listen, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna make a big deal out of it. But I think there's one, there's a, like one sort of set of countries who aren't gonna be mad if you make fun of their country. It's the ones that border the former USSR. They're not famed for their patriotism. Where were we? Adaptations, Christmas, Christmas movies. Um, Nightmare Before Christmas. Nightmare Duncan, Before go. Christmas. Nightmare Before Christmas. I see the relevance. I think the implication of two things parodying the same source material they're both trying to do a slightly dark macabre twist on christmas and thus look similar i do not think hogfather is coming from nightmare before christmas you don't think that even though it came out just three years beforehand that that was not in terry pratchett's mind he might have been a fan it strikes me as something he would have been a fan of maybe yeah all right maybe wow i just i just stared into my microphone just just glaring Duncan down. Concede, Duncan. Surrender. Joe, you know, I've never thought to personify you as my microphone. Um, <laughs> I should do that. I should put like, a tiny little sticker on the end. And uh, then my audio quality <laughs> would be even worse. I used to do um, a classic one. When I used to have to um, do online interviews, sorry, video interviews during the pandemic, I found it really hard to stare into mm-hmm. the camera. So what I did, I got a... Do you know Pez toys? Yes, I do. Little plastic things. things. They have little capsules and you lift up the top. It's normally like a character's face and a little sweetie pops out. Mm-hmm. And um, So you, d- you just had a little Pez Grogu sitting on your laptop? Better than that, I had a Pez Chewbacca that I would sellotape to the back of my camera. So whenever I was doing like my work interviews, I was actually staring deep into Chewbacca's eyes. And uh, I got jobs doing that. <laughs> Speaking of jobs... Death has a new job in this book. He's not just ferrying souls from this world to the next. He's now taken over the role of the hog. Now taken over the role of... Oh, damn it, I'm burping. <laughs> He's now taken over the role of the hog father. The hog father is out of action. His hourglass has been smashed. He is not dead because you can't kill a god turns out the hog father is a god who knew and um and someone has to take over his role because the hog father is part of this ritual where people hang up stockings for him and he brings gifts because he stems from like 
ancient pagan ideas. He was previously a winter god who needed sacrifices. Because he's changed over time, he still has like this fundamental power, which is that he's like the god of winter. And if he doesn't perform his duties, if people don't believe in him, he won't reciprocate. And he reciprocates by letting the sun rise. So death, it turns out, has to do this big mission to save the world. He has to deliver presents for the sake of all humanity. I enjoyed by the way, that, that tie into like the more kind of pagan ideas and the idea that, you know, on the Discworld, this is the equivalent of like the winter solstice and... It began with, you know, the the longest night and then the dawn, which I think was a really mm. nice uh, link in. And also to show that Discworld sort of has that same kind of comparison to our world. You ever been to the uh, Stonehenge at the Winter Solstice? Uh, no, I can't say I have been at Stonehenge at the Winter Solstice. I highly recommend it. It's great fun. Although when it's cloudy and you then don't actually get to see the sunrise, it just gets lighter. You are there like, why have I sat here for so many hours? Duncan, am I discovering that you've been hanging out with hippies? You, you've met my partner. You know what? Now that I'm looking back, I can definitely see her ribbons in her hair. You know, um... You know, handing out daffodils to people. It all makes sense now. Yeah, for sure. I'm going to get in so much trouble for these jokes. That's fine. I'm sure she doesn't listen to the podcast. No, she doesn't. That's <laughs> fine. See, I know her so well. Well, it's quite an experience. And I really like that. And I really like how it used to talk about the evolution of our own kind of Christmas traditions, which I'm not super familiar with. In fact, I did a little bit of Googling. Like, that always helps you get to the truth. Um, that there, there is there are some jokes in here about the development of Father Christmas. Oh, the the red suit being a modern thing. That was a great little line. That's right. Let's let's go through some of the ideas of like how the idea of Father Christmas or Christmas or the Hulk Father have changed over time, Duncan. Let's hear about your research. Well, I think to simplify it, because I'm not going to pretend that I'm an expert in the field after my reading of Wikipedia. After a lot of the ones, nah. particularly in sort of Western Europe, my area of expertise. Uh, stem from the idea of the winter solstice being the sort of original celebration and the fact mm-hmm. that it was the celebrating of that the shortest night had passed and the days were going to get longer and it was just celebrated mm. as sort of a feast day sort of equivalent yep. and what was very interesting is sort of the, how uh, the Christianization of the festival and the mm-hmm. concept of it was too popular to get rid of so let's just merge mm-hmm. it because uh, you know Biblical scholars don't think that Jesus was born in December. Uh, the date of December 25th is associated with other gods like Mithras and Horus. Um, and it's also specifically takes over festive winter holidays like Saturnalia and Yule. When we say the Yuletide, that is an, a Norse equivalent to Christmas. It's their winter celebration, which Christians stole. They took it away and recontextualize but it's really nice to see how certain pathways and linkages kind of still sit there it's a bit like i'm not gonna lie like i i was doing a bit of side research into the easter bunny and i was still like i don't know where you've come from how did they let you i don't think anyone does how does they how do they let the easter bunny still exist it's like okay jesus he's sacrificing on the cross yes 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 and now up comes the pink rabbit Speaking of both Easter and Christmas stories, I can't believe I forgot this during the episode, but uh, 100% check out uh, one of my favourite stories about the way that ideas around Christmas develop, and read the story 
very short, a short story by David Sedaris called Six to Eight Black Men about some of the, um, what we would consider bizarre beliefs about Christmas from, um, I can't remember, I think it might be the Netherlands, but they're really fantastic and strange. Um, I'll give you a little hint is that when Father Christmas comes to, again, I'm pretty sure the Netherlands, he comes not with reindeer, but six to eight black friends who come to abduct children. So um, definitely check out that story. It, it's, it's really something. Yeah. Yay, that's a strange one. I mean, it was literally a joke about this in American Gods. Oh, look, we talked about American Gods. Time to talk about American Gods. So, Duncan, did you not find this book as pretty similar to American Gods? Yes, in the fact that a lot of it I was thinking, where is this going? Um, it does vaguely <laughs> tie in at the end, but the character works really nice. <laughs> you see what I'm saying, though, right? Vaguely. I mean, no, the core theme, the core philosophical exploration, I think is the same about old gods and their you know, position in kind of more modern society. This one was, I was going to say, f- more fun. It had more jokes, more concise. I mean, it is more fun. Like, it's a book that's supposed to be fun, and American Gods is more serious. I mean, they both have jokes in them. Do you know what? I was mildly disappointed by both. Well, I guess they have more in common than you thought. No, but the reason I bring it up is that the real fundamental point of both books is that they're about these anthropomorphic figures. You know, beings which represent ideas you know death is more than just a guy in a hood he is like the the anthropomorphic anthropom- damn it i normally can handle this word go the on anthropomorphization Say it. shut up Anthrop- i'm saying it the anthropom- damn it you fucked me up i was halfway through saying it correctly the anthropomorphization <laughs> of death itself i'm gonna say it eight more times in this podcast i'm gonna nail it every time He's he's an idea given well not flesh but but at least bone. Yes, he is the idea as human humanity has kind of conceptualized him. There's actually a really nice um, joke, and I think it's pyramids where he shows up to sort of an Egypt theme culture, and they're like, "You mm-hmm. you're not the death god. You look nothing like you should be." And he's like, "Oh, I'm I'm so sorry. It's just you know the majority of humanity, you know the robe and the scythe. That's kind of good enough for them." And they're like, well, that's not our culture. And he gets really kind of bashful about it. <laughs> yeah, so it's uh, the anthropomorphizations. And some of them that we get in this, um, the idea in this book is that because the Hogfather goes missing, there's sort of like potential belief sloshing about. So that sort of like lesser spirits and ideas can anthropomorphize personify. Um, and this is really fun. Oh, the Oh God of Hangovers. The O God of Hangovers takes up so much of this book and I'm not sure uh, he should have been. He becomes like a side character. He's never mentioned or seen again. And I can't tell if I actually found him particularly funny per past sort of the first, past the sobering up joke. So, Geordie, what's your opinion? Oh, I'm surprised. I actually, um, that joke didn't actually get old for me. I felt like there were a lot of directions he could take it. Um, I appreciated the fact that it eventually sort of stopped being just... It was... There was a mix of the hangover joke, which I can appreciate probably could get old. Uh, I personally... I personally didn't get, like, that tired of it. Uh, but also the fact that he's, like, this anthropomorphized figure, and, um, he's not a person. 
so he's missing out on vital context. Like, there's a joke where she asks, can you ride a horse? And he goes, uh, probably. What's a horse? Because he's never seen. He doesn't know what a tree is. He's, uh, he hasn't, he has no mortal existence to fall back on. You also have a surprisingly dark ending where she's just like, he might disappear now that the Hogfather's back. Yeah, they really don't, they don't mention that. They don't really make much of that, which is, uh, he is probably just gone now. Probably is, if I had to be quite honest. If you think about it, like, he doesn't appear again. And Terry likes a good callback. Rip Bil- Bil- Bilius? Bilius. The old god of hangovers. Yeah, the old god thing is a good joke. That's a great joke. Speaking I'm not even going jokes. to explain the joke. So people can enjoy it when they read it. Speaking of jokes, it's a funny book. It is a funny book. I found this book, um, and it took me by surprise, relied a lot more on what I would describe as traditional jokes than I normally associate with Terry Pratchett. I found, especially with the wizard scenes, there was a lot more, I don't know, it felt like a, like a setup and a punchline was happening. And normally a lot of the human Terry Pratchett, I think, is more situational. And that's mm-hmm. definitely here. But I felt this one leaned a little bit more onto the sort of wordplay and characters sort of just standing around saying humorous things. You know who I liked? So there's this joke throughout this book, this running theme of um, if you believe something should exist, it would just suddenly spring into existence with a jingling-a-ling-a-ling. This was the great joke. <laughs> this is an amazing joke. You, you Go on. Ruin the joke, but also just say how fucking fantastic this joke is. This It's a really fantastic joke because uh it's it just really unleashes Terry Pratchett's creativity to make these this observational humor about the world. You know, a classic joke people make is Oh, some creature must be stealing my socks. And um and lo and behold, when someone makes this point he just gets to come up with this little monster. What sort of creature um, steals people's socks? And the answer is a small elephant about the size of a dog sneaks around inside the laundry, munching down on socks. But my favorite one is definitely um, what's she called? Like the like the, the jolly fairy, the sweet fairy, the joy fairy. Yeah, you have a joy fairy. The idea that if you aren't having fun and being kind you're upsetting the joy fairy which is sort of thing you tell to kids when someone brings this up it's like this nice middle-aged woman in a sweater and fairy wing shows up with the intention of like of making sure all the wizards are being nice and having a good time and every time they're not having fun she bursts out crying which leads to this sort of series of jokes where they just sort of mention that all the wizards have stopped what they're doing to just be nice to this strange woman who's shown up. And that plays into the sort of the message around the Hogfather, the idea that these things that come up, you can't just say, well, I want to believe in a little goblin who delivers me money because you don't need mm. that to explain you suddenly receiving loads of money because you don't receive loads of exactly. money. They have you to need explain... to invent stories to explain phenomena phenomena and that's why i think it's really powerful at the end of this book it's like oh if the hog father dies the sun won't rise yeah and it's really like well no the astrological event 
of a burning ball of gas will illuminate the earth but the story of the sun rising over the world and the darkest mm-hmm. night ending can't take place see but that's the thing though that the philosophical message in this book is really good and that ending conversation is fantastic but there's a lot of this book where we're not doing that I think I'm not I was never sure whilst reading this book whether I wasn't having as much fun as I should because I was having to read it for the podcast and therefore I had like a time frame to read it in. Are, are but, you saying that this podcast like limits your joy? Oh no, I'm making the fairy cry. I mean, I'm gonna throw the net a little wider field and just say that I have reread quite a few Terry Pratchett books in my life. Mm-hmm. Feet of Clay, Guards Guards even Thief of Time, I've actually reread more often than The Hogfather. And I think maybe there's a bit of selective kind of bias coming into my view of Terry Pratchett that I naturally go to reread the really, really good ones. And thus, my brain's telling me that they're all really, really good. Like, I mean, this is still a good book. Uh, it's just not the most efficient book. Do you know what? You're quite right, actually. What, what am I saying? This is clearly fantastic. This is a, this is better than so much of like literature. It's only I would hope this would be like God tier Terry Pratchett, and it's merely God tier any other author. I mean that's not true. Don't don't be so aggrandizing. <laughs> oh like, right, there's plenty of good books out there. It's just not Terry on his A game. Uh basically, I think this book should be shorter. You know, you said in your book it's like, what, 400 pages? For me, it's 357. Um, y- You could trim that down. You could trim it down a lot. I think I said it when I talked about the wizards, and a lot of the time we just kind of cut back to them for a joke or death. We get the same message. Um, I really feel mm-hmm. with the death set- setting, um, after the bit when he's in the mall... Sorry, fantastic joke. <laughs> Robert E. Howard reference, thank you. Yeah, that was out- that was really surprising. There is a- they spell mall, M-A-U-L. And so I, I pointed out to you as I was reading, Revels in the Mall. That was fun. But like after that scene, I genuinely feel like you could cut all subsequent death scenes until he interacts with the wizard. I completely agree, actually. I completely agree. It's so good. Like, it goes on for ages, but I really feel like all the jokes in that land, you know, like, it's the, it's the version of Santa's Grotto. And so the kids come in and they go on his knee. And this and this this joke is taken to its logical conclusion. After you have all these scenes of these kids receiving presents, um, you know, from from death, from Father Christmas, and he he gives them things he shouldn't normally be able to give. And the guy who owns the grotto is freaking out and he calls the cops. There's so many really solid jokes there. It comes to this fantastic conclusion with the character of Nobby Norms, who I was very surprised to see in this book, but pleased. Pleased to see. Nobby Dobbs was fantastically described in, I think it was Guards Guards, for disqualified from the human race for shoving. <laughs> um, I always picture him as, if you've ever seen Black Adder, this is Baldrick to me. Like You know that Baldrick does the audiobook for Hogfather. Oh, I'm well aware. Uh, however, that is the three-hour version of this book. Which, actually, now that I think about it, maybe that's the best version. Maybe the super trimmed down version is the right one to read. I think it says a lot. I can't. I haven't listened to that version, um, but I have. When I watched the uh, the live action adaptation done by Sky, they mm. cut a lot of the. We actually only really get that first scene with Death in the Mall, and then the Matchbox Girl, the the pauper who's been given food, mm-hmm. the restaurant, and all of that 
kind of gets cut and I don't think it hurts the plot for doing so. Or the experience. Mm. I didn't just say the plot. I don't think it hurts yeah. the the consumer, the reader. Not the, yeah, it doesn't hurt my experience as the entertainee um, for this story. There is a, there's a couple of really good jokes in this scene. So I actually made a note of one of them. When Nobby and Constable Visit come to the grotto to to apparently arrest, you know, this 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 imper- this imposter Hogfather. The, the joke goes like they're talking about hog wait hogs hog watch presence um they always get me bath salts complain nobby and bath soap and bubble bath and herbal bath lumps and tons of bath stuff and i can't think why because it's not as if i ever have a bath you'd think they'd take the hint wouldn't you ah every teenage boy relates (laughs) uh the the, this joke is taken to its logical extreme when it comes into this theme of like ritual and Nobby Nobs realizes his chance to get some free goodies out of this one. And because he's this tiny, tiny man, um, he sneaks in to the line and gets sat on Death's knee. And throughout all of these scenes, you've had all these tiny children, you know, like, 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 and saying, thank you to Father Christmas of the Hogfather as part of this, like, ritual experience. And as Nock. And as Nobby sits in his knee, he gets dragged into it as well. And he is reduced. He can't say any of the things he wants to say. All he can say is, thank you. And like act like a child because he's been put inside the story and loses free will. Oh, okay. I didn't read it quite that extreme. I just felt this is like the social pressure. Like once you're in that situation, you're like, okay, I, I have to, I have to act how people expect me to act. Well, you know, it's not just about, you know, you have to behave as you're supposed to behave from a social point of view. It's the fact that this is about belief and there are ironclad rules for the way you must behave on Santa's knee. You know, like you have to become the child in that story. At least he got a very nice crossbow out of it. That was funny. What do you reckon the Hogfather would bring you? Um, I mean, it's just the stuff I get for Christmas, man. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> I think they'd bring me a microphone that I could give to Duncan. Wow. Ruin my joke about getting a new microphone. Thank you very much. I would accept it gladly. Um, Yeah, I think that kind of brings most of my thoughts out there. I think the only thing I haven't said, which actually I should really emphasise to people. um, I think in our conversation about Susan, I didn't emphasise to you all. Susan's a really kind of fun character. I really like her. I love her her sort of Mm -hmm. no-nonsense approach to nannying. Um... I think she's mm-hmm. this great sort of take on a, a sort of a, I don't know, I don't want to say Mary Poppins kind of figure. Uh, she is a Mary Poppins figure. There are numerous jokes about her being a Mary Poppins figure. Yeah, she is a Mary Poppins figure, but I don't want to be like, I don't want to mislead. It is the, it is the, the subversion. She is a, exactly, she is a parody of Mary Poppins. She is a magical nanny who teaches the kids good manners. The difference is that her manners are monsters aren't real. Even though they definitely are, I'm going to try and make you disbelieve in magic. I'm going to try and make you more normal. And um, she has a she has a poker which she uses to beat up the monsters under the bed. My best one is the. Uh... And this is a constant refrain throughout the book: is that the the poker is the thing that all monsters truly fear. The uh, when they go out for walks and she's like, "The step on the cracks and a bear will eat you." And it's just like all the the terrified bears wandering around Ankh Morpork. 
<laughs> exactly. No, I, I feel, yeah, and I definitely that. I, I like that. I like that approach of like someone trying to teach the kids to be more normal and less whimsical and less cute children. Uh, and it's also nice that you, you're right. You're actually okay. I know I said it's not Mary Poppins. It's Subversion Mary Poppins. But the, my point is, is is Mary Poppins in this Hogfather Christmas story? Like the number of other kind of like parodies and side references that are in here is impressive. And she's not a nanny in any of the other books. You know, he's he's chosen this one to be like, okay, I'm going to explore this. She'll be a nanny so she can interact with the children. Mm. That's the importance of Hogwatch. It's nicely done. Duncan, when you read uh, Soul Music, did you understand any of the, the music jokes in that Other as than well? uh, it's music with rocks in, I didn't get a single one. It's going to be fucking wild when we, go, when we read that book, we find out that it's all the same jokes as uh, Kings of the Wild. You're like, wow, they call Death Slowhand in this. I can't believe you didn't catch this, Duncan. Don't. I've, I've not reread that one since I first read it. In fact, um, I wanted, despite loving the Death's, Death as a character, I actually think his series is probably one of the weaker ones other than Rince Wind. Wow. Have I come out of I said so? <laughs> other than Rince Wind. Other than Rince Wind, yeah. I, I just feel that, um, you think about it, there's kind of five core death books, of which death is only really the, the actual protagonist in Reaper Man, uh, the second one. And I don't have a massive connection to soul music or Hogfather. Um, in fact, I think Thief of Time is my favourite one with Susan. And Mort is fantastic and should be your mm. first uh, Discworld novel, if not Guards Guards. Yeah, Death as a character in this, I mean, it's obviously it's a hard story to write about a character like Death, where they, or he is the main character. But I think there's something to be said. We already mentioned Neil Gaiman. He's come up a lot in this in this episode, working on Terry Pratchett with Good Omens. We've mentioned American Gods. And I think it's very suitable that we sort of bring in uh, his version of Death. Because the two of them together wrote another anthropomorphized version of Death, nailed it, uh, in Good Omens. And that was a lot, that was pretty similar to to Terry's version. Because, you know, Terry, because Neil Gaiman's version of Death in the Sandman comics is actually not that far off. They kind of have similar ideas around the idea that Death is a character who's fascinated by humans. Uh, and whilst... And whilst this death isn't, you know, uh, a hot goth lady, um, there's still this sense that when you depart, when you die and you're greeted by the psychopomp death, you're meeting with an old friend, someone who's going to guide you on to the afterlife with a sort of friendly pat on your back. So I'm struggling to come up to this one because obviously I've I've actually not read Sandman. Um... I've only read the first trade paperback, first trade paperback issue of Sandman, and I've just finished watching the uh, the Netflix series. Duncan, have you seen it? I have not. Um, to my shame. I really can't recommend it more highly enough. It is so good. We spoke, we've spoken about some of the other TV show fantasy series that came out this year. And it's embarrassing, frankly, that we didn't talk about Sandman because it's so much better than all of them. Do you know what? And this is what I find really embarrassing is the fact that this one might be absolutely amazing, yet I'm probably going to finish watching Willow first. <laughs> Which uh, is getting a lot of heat out there, and I think it's fun. Not good, necessarily, but it's fun. 
I can't. I still can't get away from the fact that uh, when you we, a couple of episodes back, and I don't know which one it was in, you mentioned they're making a new Willow series, and truly, it wasn't until weeks later that I realized you weren't talking about Buffy the Vampire Slayer. What? There's a magical character in that called Willow, and I was just watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer, so I thought you were talking about Buffy the Vampire like Slayer. Like a spin-off from Buffy, like... Yes, years, like, they already did one! Oh, no. Willow, the poet Davies. Absolutely classic bit of fantasy from the era. Um, and I was trying to... Ex- from the era. From the era. The era before good fantasy films were made, e.g. before Lord of the Rings. And ve- and then that was it. That was the end. They made Lord of the Rings. They made two Narnia films, and then they stopped making good fantasy films. I'm thinking about whether or not I'm going to contest this, but my brain's pulling up a lot of blanks. And when the best example mm. I have in my head is Warcraft, I don't think we're doing good. Oof. You know, the really wonderful thing about Terry Pratchett's version of death is the idea, like I said, that you're going to meet a friend when you pass over. That the last. Well, not face. The last uh, head you see uh, is going to be a friendly one. And genuinely, you know, when Terry Pratchett passed away, that was something which people drew a lot of comfort from. The idea that this was a man who spent so much of his career focused on death as a character and not something to be afraid of. Uh, There's a great joke in this book that um, Mort and his wife's family motto is a phrase in Latin which I translated, and it's Don't Fear the Reaper. It's cute, and it's relevant. And I think it's so nice at the end of this book, we have a great climax where the assassin has death and Susan at sword point, and the little children come in, and he tries to go, look, look, it's the scary Mm. bone man. And the children are looking, they're like, yeah, but he's just sitting there having a biscuit. Mm. That's a nice little thesis statement. Do you say that... uh... That she takes her poker, she hurls it straight through death, and it passes through him and strikes the assassin and kills him. And the assassin's like dying, saying like, "Why? Why did that?" And the little girl says, "Because they only the poker only hurts monsters." And not only is it you know like saying, "Oh, it killed the evil man because he's the true monster." It also didn't hurt death. The idea that death isn't something to be afraid of. That it's, you know, this natural part of existence. And shall we wrap up the podcast by visiting that that scene you've spoken about so many times this episode? I think we have to. I think we just need to hit two other little things first. Actually, no, just one. The assassin. The assassin. Do you already say his name? Tia Tia Timer. I was proud of myself. By the end of this book, I actually changed my brain to say it correctly every time I read it. I did it every time. When he's, at first, he's, it appears that his name is Mr. Tea Time. Um, and then he corrects that his name is actually pronounced Tea Timer. And so for the rest of the book, I was like, okay, it's Tea Timer. And <laughs> to the point where there were times when characters who were not pronouncing his name correctly were saying it. And I kept thinking I didn't really register, but they were saying Tea Time. In my head, it was just Tea Timer. It's just respectful, you Obviously. know? Obviously. Obviously, and also a nice little point out for the typography. There's a great bit where a character emphasises the fact that they're saying it wrong, and I think they go into italics. So it's Mister like T time. You're like, yes, got that right. Mm-hmm. Right, end on to the best scene ever, and the thing that makes this novel amazing. Duncan, would you like to just like do a reading of this? It's just dialogue back and forth. So, what if we just read it back and forth between us? Can you find the page? I will go and find the page. 
Now, just to be clear, Jordi, uh, am I death or Susan? Uh, I'm asking you. I want to hear, before we've made that decision, I want to hear your version of death. See if you can, like, do a voice. What, the guy who has never done any dramatic work in his life? Okay, mm-hmm. where's the death line I can read? Really? As if it was some kind of pink pill? No. Humans need fantasy to be human. To be the place where the falling angel meets the rising ape. That's the best I got. What do you think, Duncan? I mean, this will be my Susan. All right, said Susan. I'm not stupid. You're saying humans need fantasies to make life bearable. So, pick your poison, mate. I think that's actually better. That wasn't bad. I, know, I, thought, I thought that. As I started saying it, I went, actually, I can do a young woman's voice. <laughs> All right, you want us to do Susan now? I'll do Susan. There are two ways to do death, in my opinion, and I can only do one of them for a couple of lines, which would be to go, Really? As if it were some sort of pink pill. No, humans need fantasy. <coughs> Never mind, I'll, I won't go as hard. <coughs> uh, my death, I think I, I I like to, in my head at least, it, it takes a lot from Christopher Lee, who I think did voice him or something. To set the scene, people, the Hogfather has been saved. The auditors have been driven off. And now Susan confronts her grandfather about... What the hell's going on, or being going on, or being done just now? Susan doesn't believe that if the Hogfather had died, the sun would not have risen. She can't believe that. It's been a long night, Grandfather. I'm tired and I need a bath. I don't need silliness. The sun would not have risen. Really? Then what would have happened, pray? A mere ball of flaming gas would have illuminated the world. They walked in silence for a moment. Ah, said Susan dully. Tricky with words. I would have thought you'd have been more little-minded than that. I am nothing if not literal-minded. Trickery with words where humans live. All right, said Susan. I'm not stupid. You're saying humans need fantasies to make life bearable? Really? As if it was some kind of pink pill? No. Humans need fantasy to be human. To be the place where the falling angel meets the rising ape. Two fairies? Hogfathers? Little? Yes, as practice. You have to start out learning to believe the little lies. So we can believe the big ones? Yes. Justice, mercy, duty, that sort of thing. They're not the same at all. You think so? Then take the universe and grind it down to the finest powder and sieve it through the finest sieve and then show me one atom of justice, one molecule of mercy, and yet... Death waved a hand. And yet you act as if there was some ideal order in the world, as if there was some... some rightness in the universe by which it may be judged. Yes, but people have got to believe that, or... What's the point? My point, exactly. And for those wondering, yes, I do use my Susan voice when I have to ring up uh, the broadband provider in my partner's name and pretend to be a woman. (laughs) (laughs) And I use my death voice when I need to tell them that they'd be doing a bad job. No, that's not true. I'm very nice to people I speak to on the telephone. Final thoughts. Final thoughts. Well... The Hogfather, it's hardly a perfect book, and it's certainly nowhere near the heights of what Terry Pratchett can do. It's not the best demonstration of his powers. And yet, 
still a very enjoyable book full of really funny and touching moments. We didn't even cover like some of the really sweet stuff that happened with the Tooth Fairy. Yeah, if you're a fan of Discworld, you gotta read it. But it shouldn't be your first foray into Discworld or Terry Pratchett. I couldn't agree more. It is a very nice Christmas read, but it just could have done a bit more tightening. I think a little bit more plot for its runtime. Um, but the jokes are still funny. The philosophical points are still well made. And some of the character work here is still exemplary. It's just just, just a little tightening up, you know? It's a little tighter. Without a doubt. And ultimately, it's like when it comes to recommendations... Do I recommend Hogfather? Well, I recommend Discworld to just about everyone. I recommend starting with either Mort, the first death book, or Guards Guards, the first watch book. And once you're then started Discworld and you're into Discworld, uh, you're going to read Hogfather. So I guess I do recommend Hogfather. Question is though, what do other people think about Hogfather? Because it's not just about you and me, Jordi, this book club. It's about all of you listeners, the many people who have joined us over this uh, first year of us hosting this club and as always you can reach out and send us your opinions on Hogfather, on Discworld or on any of the books we have or have not read yet at either our gmail at isthisjustfantasypodcast at gmail.com or now on Instagram at isthisjustfantasypodcast where you'll get regular posts about a day after the episodes go live telling you the episodes gone live as well as a few other tidbits and what we've been reading and uh, reviews on other kind of series. Just general fantasy stuff that passes through my life, really. So, Duncan, that brings us to the end of Hogfather. And, you know, we've completed our ritual. You know, as was the prophecy foretold, we completed our podcast, which means that the sun will, in fact, rise. We did it, Duncan. It turns out our podcast is necessary to the fabric of reality. It's what we set out to do. Every day. That's right. All the other jokes we had about us doing podcasts for fame and glory, it's all, it's all, it's not true. It's really, it's for all of you out there. You're welcome. So what's our pick for next week, Geordie? Well, I feel like rather than just jump into the next book, since it is the end of our first year, I think it's time that we did a bit of a retrospective. We, we've covered so many books over the last year that I think it's time to stretch our mind back and have a look about some of the high points that we've covered, you know, some of the books we really enjoyed, and then some hopes and plans for the year going forward as we kick off our second year of Is This Just Fantasy? I look forward to it. No? La, 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 la. I look, what am I trying to say? I look forward to being with you for the whole time. I look forward to the ride. I look forward to... What am I trying to say? Look forward, look forward to going through it with you, man. Looking forward to going through it with you, man. All right, try again. Looking forward to going... Th- oh, my gosh. Make it sound natural, man. Really looking forward to going through that with you, man. It's going to be a great time. Okay, you sounded literally like you were dead inside. (laughs) Say it with some enthusiasm. I'm really looking forward to... Ah! Oh my god! Duncan, say something else. There's still so many fantasy books out there, Geordie. I mean, I actually have a list now for maybe about the next five or six years. (laughs) So let's keep playing through them. 
I my plan is gonna be I'm gonna I'm gonna surprise you. You know, I think part of the conceit of this show is that I was gonna show you books that I don't think you'd normally get a chance to read, and I feel like I haven't done that for a while. I feel like I've been playing it too safe. So I'm gonna I'm gonna get out there, man. For those and I'm I'm gonna make you read like it's been way too long since we read a Twilight book. I'm gonna make you read some Twilights. You do that, mate. I went on holiday the other day. I stayed with a friend, and they had a copy of the 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 Edwards. Yeah, Midnight Sun. I was genuinely thinking, like, could I wrangle it into making Duncan read that book, even though it's kind of a, it's not technically a sequel. So I feel like I could make him read that. And I, Geordie, I'm going to make you read all sorts of weird, out there, sword and sorcery pulp. I have played it way too safe, stayed way too <laughs> close to like the main characters. There is a rabbit hole there, and I'm going to drag you down. I'm going to find out who the fuck Fofnir is. Hi, right, everyone. It's been a pleasure being with you all, all this Christmas. Until our end of year wrap up, have a great time. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. And to all a good podcast. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs>